Well, good morning, Faith. Welcome back to our series for 2023, The Life of Christ. As we walk through this year, we've been focusing on the events that took place in Christ's life, in His lifetime. Now, I don't want you to lose sight of the fact that this is one small part of the whole amazing plan that God has for us that began long before time ever began. Arguably, we might say this is the most important part of the plan that culminates in Jesus' life and in His death and in His resurrection. This morning, we're going to continue through the life of Jesus with yet another one of the many wild beasts that Jesus encountered. Now, some of you are going, wild beasts? I don't remember Jesus ever encountering any wild beast. Is this like mutual of Omaha and the wild king? I know I'm dating myself. If anyone you remember watching that show, it was terrific from 63 to 85. Well, Mark tells us that when Jesus was driven into the wilderness to be tempted, he was in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. So what wild beast does Jesus meet? Do we meet in his life today? Whoa, look at that thing. Woo, that's a wild beast if ever I saw one. Talk about a bad hair day. I just washed my hair and I can't do a thing with it. 80 pounds of wool they cut off of this one sheep. I'd say that the sheep's caregivers were neglecting their duties. Actually, the section of John that we're going to consider this morning has less to do with the sheep and more to do with the caregivers. But before we do, we want to remind you that if you missed a message, any message of this series or previous series, you can always catch up by going to www.ffcsermons.org where you can listen online, download a podcast, share with a friend. You can also go to www.ffcph.org, click on the live tab, and watch a previous message on YouTube or Facebook. Let's open in a word of prayer, and as we do, we want to lift up Ben Brittenall's mom. She's suffering hard with cancer, going through really aggressive treatment, so we'll lift her up as we do so. Father, we thank you for your presence here with us this morning. We thank you that you invite us to cast our cares at your feet, knowing that you care for us. And Father, we lift up Ben's mom, Ruth, that you be with her as she goes through the struggles of cancer and of and of chemo and the aggressive treatments that she's facing, and that you just, uh, the family feels your comfort and your care in an extraordinary way. Father, be with, uh, be with us this morning as we open up your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Sheep and their shepherd. We'll be in John chapter 10 this morning. From the standpoint of chronology, we are in the last year, year three in Jesus' ministry. The same sheep that he is talking about in this story, this would include you and I, are the sheep that he is going to die for. Geographically, Jesus is somewhere near Jerusalem, perhaps along the banks of the Jordan River. We're going to look at the passage. It's a long one, 21 verses, so we're going to take it in small bites, beginning in verse 1. I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Well, you know, this, this chapter actually kind of starts abruptly. It ends with a story in, in John 9 and then immediately goes into this and they seem completely disconnected. One stops, bam, and the other one starts. Well, here's the thing. 
When John wrote his gospel, it wasn't divided into chapters and verses. That structure is artificial and was added much, much later. It wasn't until the English Geneva Bible was published in 1560 that both our current chapters and verses were adopted, and that's what we find in our, in our Bibles today. Why is this important? Good question. Here's why it's important for us today. It's important for us today, this year, this month, this morning, because John chapter 10, and here comes a great revelation, immediately follows John chapter 9. Whoa! I'm so, I'm so enlightened, I would never have guessed that to be the truth. Yeah, it's a pretty elementary observation. Except that John chapter 10 doesn't stand alone as a completely different, unattached story from John 9, where Jesus heals a man born blind. But you see, that's the way we normally come to the Scriptures, isn't it? We often jump in without regard to context. And context is everything. Let me give you an example. A man was trying to discern the will of God for his life. And he tried desperately to deal with the things he struggled for. And he had lust in his eyes, and he's like, Lord, please show me your will. And with that prayer, he closed his eyes. He dropped his Bible on the table before him, and he prayed, Lord, direct my finger to your will. And he placed his finger blindly, eyes still closed, on the page of the Bible before him. And when he opened his eyes to find, he found that his finger had fallen to Matthew 18, 9. And if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. Better to enter heaven with one eye than to be in hell with two. Lord, can this be your will? And he closed his eyes again to repeat the process. Only this time, when he opened his eyes, he's found that his finger had landed on Luke 10, 37. Go and do likewise, is what Jesus says. So if this is how we study the Bible, there'd be a lot of mutilated blind people in church. Context is important. And so we ask our favorite question, why? Why is John chapter 10 here? Well, it's here because it is the answer to what happens in John chapter 9. They are very much connected. You cannot take them apart if you want to understand what in the world Jesus is talking about in John 10 and why the Pharisees get so upset with Jesus. There is a theme that John carries all the way from chapter 9 through chapter 10. Now, some people wonder if these events are chronologically arranged. In other words, did Jesus say these words immediately after the events of John chapter 9? Then again, maybe there was a gap. But there can be no doubt that the Holy Spirit was working through John, the gospel writer, to tell us that the theme of chapter 9 flows into chapter 10. Okay, so now we've got to go back a chapter to understand that backdrop before we can move on. So what happened in John 9? In John chapter 9, we have a controversy surrounding a man who was born blind. A man Jesus miraculously heals. Now I thought they would have been happy about that. Why'd they get so mad? What in the world was wrong with that? Well, I'll tell you. The big controversy was because Jesus, here it comes, healed him on the Sabbath. Oh, no, he didn't. Oh, yes, he did. He healed him on the Sabbath. And when the religious leaders, who should have been rejoicing that the man that had been healed by God was indeed healed, regardless of the day, instead they call him a liar. 
They call his parents in before them. They call his parents liars. They cuss him out when he questions their ignorance of the events that they should have known about. They falsely accuse him, and they throw him out of the synagogue and correspondingly out of what we would call church. And here in John chapter 10, Jesus is going to contrast their wickedness, the unfaithfulness of those religious leaders, to his wonderful spiritual leadership. And to do so, he's using the illustration of a shepherd and his sheep. And the whole idea is this. I'll give you the the overview of the whole chapter. Jesus is pointing out, I am the good shepherd. The religious leaders that rule over you, they are not good and faithful leaders or shepherds. Now, one way he draws this contrast is to look at how they came into their positions of power. In other words, how did they wind up in charge? Well, look here in verse 1. I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold, rather than going through the gate, must surely be a thief and a robber. Jesus had in mind the kind of enclosure they would have used out in the field in the ancient world to pen sheep in at nighttime. We might call it a sheep pen. They called it a sheep fold. As an enclosure, it might have had a gate, of wood or the shepherd himself would have been the gate and sat in the gate. He would have sat across it and he would have let the, the sheep in at night where they would be protected by the walls that surround them. And then in the morning he would let them out to pastures to feed in the morning. Now you can see in this kind of construction there's only one legitimate way in and out of the sheepfold. And it is through the opening, through the doorway. If you were going to come in any other way than the legitimate way, you'd have to hop the wall. So right away, that would identify you, not only as illegitimate, but someone who was up to no good purpose. You see what Jesus is trying to do in this great illustration. The idea is that there's a door. There's a proper way to gain entry. But not everyone who stands among the sheep has come to them to serve them in a legitimate, God-ordained way. And those religious leaders who ruled over God's people at the time that Jesus was speaking... This is who Jesus is talking about. They didn't come in through God's appointed means. They came in through personal and political connections. They came through formal education, meant to set them apart as better than everyone else, through ambition, through manipulation, through competition. That's how they gained entry into their positions of spiritual leadership. And Jesus says, that's no good. That's an illegitimate way to come into ministry among my people. And therefore, they are like thieves and robbers among God's people. Now, when you and I hear thieves and robbers, we think criminals. It's the same thing. We think they refer to the same thing. This is where English falls down, because in the original language, it's two completely different words. And that is a distinction that is made between a thief and a robber. A thief is someone who steals by deception. They fool you. They con you. They trick you. They're stealing by deception. That's a thief. The robber is someone who steals by violence and intimidation. They're two different kinds of criminals. And Jesus is trying to identify that this is also true in the spiritual realm. Because some leaders among God's people today, they are deceptive like the thief. Or they use force or authority or intimidation like the robber. When what we need and what God wants for us is a legitimate shepherd who ultimately is Jesus Christ. I don't care who your leader is, if you trust in them more than you do in God, you will be let down. 
Your focus for final spiritual leadership in your life must always come from Jesus Christ. My hope and prayer for you is that God will put around you spiritual leaders who truly follow in the heart and footsteps of Jesus. I'd like to think we have those here at faith, but you must hold us, you must hold me up against the light of Scripture and of truth. I pray that I would be such a person. In any case, I want you to know that there are spiritual leaders out and about who don't fit the description of the Good Shepherd. And we need to be aware that there are wolves in sheep's clothing out there. And we need to have compassion on those who have suffered from bad spiritual leadership. But there's also a good spiritual leader out there and good spiritual leadership out there. Look at it here in verse 2. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The true shepherd comes in a legitimate way with nothing to hide. He comes in through love, through calling, through care and sacrificial service. God has a way, a right way. And it's always worth seeing what that right way is. How did this person come to their place of authority among God's people? Was it in a way that really reflects the heart and the mind of Jesus? Or was it not? Now Jesus is going to continue talking along these lines beginning in verse 3 where he says, The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his sheep by name and leads them out. After he has gathered his flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. Jesus uses this illustration, but they don't understand the things that he's talking about. Now, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees as his primary audience, but he's also talking to his disciples and followers. To his followers, he is telling them of the benefits of what a good shepherd is really like in contrast to what they have been living with under the spiritual regime of the Pharisees. Well, how bad was that? Well, we hear that all the time, but what was it like? Well, I'll let Jesus explain it for us. Jesus tells us in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of Moses' law. So practice and obey whatever they tell you. But don't follow their example, for for they don't practice what they teach. This is where practice what you preach comes from. Like many of those expressions, they have a biblical origin. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease their burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra-wide prayer boxes with Scripture verses inside and wear robes with extra-long tassels. Those prayer boxes are called phylacteries, and they would bind these boxes to their arms and to their foreheads to show how devoted they were. I showed this picture to my wife and said, does he have a GoPro on his head? I said, no, that's that's a prayer box. It's got scripture verses in it. And they love to sit at the head table or banquets in the seats of honor in synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace and be called rabbi. This is why Jesus came to the poor and to those who had been cast out first, to say to them, to describe to them, to those who had been rejected and set aside by the spiritual leaders of the day, this is what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be like. I'm talking about the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount that Jesus dropped on the people was so countercultural that it's often been described as upside-down teaching. It's as if Jesus is saying, I understand that there is a deep-seated longing in your heart to be significant 
to accomplish something, to be loved, to achieve. And you have been trying to fill that in all the wrong way. Your leaders have wronged you. They have robbed you and stolen from you. And I'm here to tell you that my message is this. The way up is down. The way in is out. The way that you think you should live life is wrong. And in his goodness, he says, I'm going to give you truth. I'm going to essentially give you a new way to be human. And in doing so, you will end up living the life that you have always wanted to live, the one that I created you for. And he says these well-known words to them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who persecute, who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. These words that Jesus is speaking here in John chapter 10 were meant to cut the Pharisees to their core to set the captive true sheep free to follow him. And Jesus says that there's a valid way of entry. And it's not for the con man. It's not for thieves and robbers who might be seeking a place among God's people. The legitimate shepherd, he comes in in a legitimate way and the doorkeeper opens to him. And in verse 3, he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When we were kids, my mom would kick us out in the summer and tell us not to come home except for lunch and dinner. I think four kids was just too much to handle. I need some space. Y'all got to go. You come home for dinner. And I always found it amazing that I could be blocks away playing in a friend's house. And when my mother stuck her head out the door and hollered, dinner time, I could hear her. And I'd say to my friends, oh man, my mom just called. It's time for dinner. I got to go. <laughs> you didn't need a cell phone. All you needed was a, a mom who could holler. My friends would look at me funny and they'd say, I didn't hear anything. I said, that's because she's not your mom. You don't know her voice or her cooking. And I didn't want to miss that. My mom was a good cook. I loved her food. In fact, even my, uh, when my wife and I first got married, I would say to Joanna, my wife, that's not the way my mother cooks it. <laughs> that's not the way my mother does it. Now, admittedly, I wasn't too smart back then. Right? All right, I'm still learning. Finally, my wife set me straight. One day with hands on the hips and the head bobbing back and forth, she said, I am not your mother. And I never said those words again out loud. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> ever. <laughs> when Jesus said these words, he had in mind one of those communal sheepfolds that would be near the city limits. Sheep and shepherds from several different flocks would work in kind of a cooperative. And when nighttime came, all the sheep would get into the enclosure. They'd just mix them all together. Now, you do, th do you think these sheep kept and hung out only with their own shepherd sheep? No. They'd all be mixing together, telling each other the latest bad jokes. But in the morning, it was easy to separate them. All the shepherd had to do was to go outside of the gate and each give their distinctive call. Or they would call them by name. Come Dasher and Dancer and Prancer and Vixen. You know, Comet and Cupid and Donner and Blitzen. Don't forget Rudolph. Well, this is the wrong season, I know, but they would call them by name. They would give sort of a call, and the sheep that belonged to the shepherd, their ears would perk up, and they'd go, that's my shepherd calling. It's time for breakfast. i got to go. 
they would recognize his voice. And they would leave the enclosure and they would go with that shepherd and it worked. Sheep have sort of a brilliant understanding of who the good shepherd is. And they want to follow him. Because the shepherd has a personal connection to the sheep. He calls them by name. How about you? Would you recognize the voice of Jesus, the good shepherd? Does he know your name? Or are you still in bondage to the greatest of thieves and robbers, the, fathers, the father of lies, Satan himself? Back to John chapter 10, verse 6. Those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant. So he explained it to them. I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true shepherd did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pasture. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. My purpose is to give them rich and satisfying life. He wants to know you by name and lead you to greener pastures so that you may have life that is rich and satisfying. Continuing in verse 11, But I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters them. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for money and, and doesn't really care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me. Just as my father knows me and I know the father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. Notice what he says in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. He says it so plainly that nobody could mistake the contrast that he is drawing between himself and the religious leaders who had mistreated this man who was born blind and is now healed. They rejected him. They insulted him. They attacked him. Did all those things to him. I'm not like you, Jesus says. I'm the good shepherd. And when I see a wolf coming, I deal with it. By the way, that's part of the responsibility of a shepherd, isn't it? To discern when a wolf is coming and to deal with it and to step up to the task. Steppers, uh, shepherds need to step up and do the appropriate thing and at the appropriate moment and be used by God to protect the flock against a wolf and an enemy. And one of the ways that they protect us is through their sacrificial service. Look at it there in verse 11. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. The blind man, he's had a bad shepherd whom Jesus calls a hired hand in these verses. The hired hand will not defend the sheep and thinks the flock only exists for their own purpose, for their own good, not the good shepherd. He looks at the flock and he says, I exist for your, for your benefit. Make no mistake, we were created for God's glory, but I want you to consider what Isaiah has to say about our good God. Isaiah 64.4, one of my favorite verses, says, Since ancient times, no one has heard no ear has perceived, no eye has seen a God who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Only the God of Christianity is a God who serves and wants to benefit us. A God who works on our behalf. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. I care for them. I lay down my life for them. Now I want you to think about this and I want you to especially want you to think about what's here in verse 11. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. And I want you to tie it back to verse 10. What was verse 10? Verse 10 simply said, I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, full of richness and satisfaction. 
if you need more life, if you need extra life or abundant life, where are you going to get more life from? From yourself? I don't think so. That's how you got in this mess in the first place. Dealing with your own self, trying to give your own self life. You're going from the fire out of the frying pan and into the fire. You don't need more of your own life. If you're looking for extra life, you need life outside of you. You need the life that Jesus came to give you. And Jesus says, I'm going to do it for you. I'm going to lay my life down for you. I'm going to give it to you. I certainly need that. I still need it. That extra life that Jesus has given. And it's a simple thing to have. Jesus is, he is, his life is our abundant life. I mean, isn't that plain? Isn't that simple? But we only have extra life because Jesus gave his life for us. And he became our abundant life. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, Come to me, all you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you, because I am a humble I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. Back in John 10, verse 16, Jesus says, I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. I will bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. In verse 16, Jesus says something that's very profound, and we need to understand what he means. He says, I have other sheep too that are not of this fold. You remember what the fold was? The fold was a walled structure that enclosed the sheep. Jesus looked at the sheep inside of that structure and he said, yep, those are my sheep. But you know what? My flock is way bigger than could ever be contained in one fold. My flock is bigger than just this pen. I have sheep not of this fold. Who do you think he was talking about when he said that? He was talking about you and me. He was talking about every Gentile believer who has ever been saved by believing in Jesus, that he is God's son, that he rose again, that he died for us. Do you know you're mentioned in the Bible? Me too. I'm not a Hebrew, but I'm in the Bible. I'm one of those other sheep. Even better than that, before the foundation of the world, my name was in the book, and so is yours. If you let Christ be your Savior, your good shepherd. Jesus goes on in verse 17 to 18, My Father loves me because I sacrificed my life so I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. Jesus is pointing out that this whole business about laying down his life is not just talk for him. He's actually going to do it. He's going to lay down his life, and he alone has the power to raise that back up again. When he said these things, the people were again divided in their opinions about him. Some said he's demon-possessed and out of his mind. Who would listen to a man like that? Others said, this doesn't sound like a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? I have to admit that Jesus made some absolutely bold and audacious claims he stood in front of this group of people, and he goes, listen, I'm the good shepherd. The religious leaders you have right now, the Pharisees, they're no good. They're like con men and robbers. That's what he's saying, spiritually speaking. That's a pretty bold thing to say, especially to the Pharisees. But he doesn't stop there. He says, not only am I the good shepherd, but I'm going to lay down my life. And when I lay down my life, I have the power to raise it up again. I will resurrect myself, King of Kings. 
That's a pretty bold statement to make, don't you think? I mean, anybody can lay down their life. But I don't know anyone who can raise their own life up again, except perhaps God. Now, was it boastful of Jesus to say that? Was it prideful? Worship team, you can make your way back up. In the 1930s, there was a pitcher by the name of Jay Hanna, better known as Dizzy Dean. He played for the St. Louis Cardinals, the gas house gang, they called themselves. And they were good, really good. And this was back in the day when superstars were usually quiet, humble men, but not Dizzy. He was full of bravado, full of himself, liked to boast about everything that he can do. And his brash confidence was of somewhat of a sensation to these Depression-era baseball fans. They ate it up, as Dean almost always had the goods to deliver on his predictions of success. When questioned about his lack of humility, when it came to discussing his formidable talent as a big league pitcher, Dean had this to say, it ain't bragging if you can do it. It ain't bragging if you can do it. To be able to say that you can raise yourself from the dead ain't bragging if you can do it. You are just declaring who you actually are. Now, when Jesus said that, there was a division again among the Jews. Some people said, he's demon-possessed, he's crazy. I'm surprised they weren't struck dead. But Jesus allowed them to say it. And you can see how entrenched people were in their rejection of Jesus. How crazy was it for them to say this about Jesus? Because his words were absolutely true. And his actions are what sets us free to go from bondage to fullness of life, to free us from the weight of our own sin, from shepherds who neglect us for their own good, their own purposes, to the good shepherd who gave his life so that we could be set free to live the life that God created for us. Paul says this in his letters, in his letter to the church, to the churches in Rome that he writes, when we were utterly helpless with no way of escape, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners who had no use for him. Even if we were good, we really wouldn't expect anyone to die for us. Though, of course, that might be barely possible. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. How cool would it be if you died and were in front of the throne of God and instead of having to, to plead your case, which you don't have to do if you are a believer, say, I believe in Jesus, I know you, I read your word, I went to church on Sunday. How cool would it be if before you ever spoke a word out of your mouth, God looked at you and said, I know you. I know you. I saw your efforts. I saw your flaws. I saw your failures. But I know you. And more importantly, you know me. Well done, my good and faithful servant. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. If you want to be assured of knowing God, it's as simple as saying, God, I want to know you. I'm tired of being robbed and beaten. I want the rich and satisfying life that you sent your son to die for. I believe he died for me. I believe he rose again. He wasn't bragging when he said he could. I own you as my Lord and as my good shepherd. Pray those words, say those words, and you will be. Faith Fellowship Church, know that God is for you and not against you. Have a good day in Jesus. We'll end with a song.